Back like I left something. What? I'm back like I left something. Alright. Is it your camera? Uh I left my camera one place ever. And it was in Las Vegas. It wasn't a good thing. And I blame it on Priscilla Agnesilla. It's her fault, totally. Always Priscilla's fault. It's her fault. <laughs> For making you have a good time, Rico. Shame on her. Ah! <laughs> what? <laughs> Something just happened. Dude, the weed guys are punishing you for talking <laughs> shit. Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canicurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, March 11th, 2022. This is episode number 234. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, AKA Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 27,000 State of Cannabis NewsHour members if you want to be an audience participant. That's one of the unique things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that's intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about controversial cannabis czar of Los Angeles is exiting. New York is letting cannabis convicts step to the front of the line. The industry is becoming a David versus Goliath battle. A new infused bakery, 
Oregon issues an emergency declaration, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage, but keep it brief and relevant or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, director of operations at LB Atlantis, and an important advocate for the plant. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, my headline today, unfortunately, is actually about people who are in jail for marijuana. Um, this is actually coming out of the WRIC ABC 8 News, where the headline reads, Virginia House Republicans Reject Marijuana Resentencing Bill. Uh, well, in Richmond, Virginia, Virginia House Republicans squashed an effort to give people incarcerated for marijuana-related crimes an automatic resentencing hearing. State lawmakers voted last year to allow adults to possess small amounts of marijuana, but Democrats said the time for restraints that kept proposals to include resentencing, op resentencing options for those incarcerated on marijuana convictions were left on the shelf. Democratic State Senator Scott Sover of Fa Fairfax and, and Luis Lucas introduced the bill of legislation this year that would allow those in the state custody an option for probation for marijuana-related felonies to ask the circuit court, of circuit court judge for a different sentence. In February, the Virginia sentence passed, uh, Virginia Senate, sorry, passed the legislation of the bipartisan vote. Changes were made to the bill once reached in the House, and the delegates ultimately rejected this by Republicans. On a 12-10 party-line vote Monday, the GOP-controlled Virginia House Appropriations Committee defeated this bill. The measure before panel had been changed to eliminate the automatic hearing option and only called for a state study on resentencing. That seems a little bit uh unnecessary to study sentencing of, of uh, cannabis crimes. The underlying problem was that decriminalization and possession of marijuana by adults of small amounts in most circumstances last year, and there's about 428 people who are still incarcerated for marijuana distribution who probably would not have gotten that type of sentence under the current law, um, as said by Senator Sever. Sever once said that there, the charges increased due to prior marijuana convictions. He told the panel that the original bill did not not guarantee any release, but only a process that would be set up for those nonviolent convictions. Well, this is something that I definitely am really disappointed in. I hope that this is something that gets brought back to committee at some point in the very near future. Um, a lot of people were counting on it, Cerveo said on Monday. Adding this measure has been lumped into the larger discussion about legalization, uh, but that it has nothing to do with retail sales, but with criminalization. And I think this is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. The GOP squashing this makes me really sad, not surprised, but I hope that this is something that gets brought back to light very soon. I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Fucking Virginia, man. I want to, want to, want to love my home state for what they've done. And um, it just is what it is, I guess. You know, it's one of those things where you uh, hope for the best and expect the worst. And sometimes the worst happens. My apologies, Rico, for my interruption. But uh, Virginia is for lovers, not so much. It's for haters. 
I mean, the idea that the the caveat or the replacement to resentencing was a study on incarceration, like, like what the fuck are you going to study? And at the end of the day, it, it's obviously a bad idea, like that there is no gray area in that. It is a terrible idea to lock people away for a plan. Yes, I, I mean, everyone always likes to say you can't put the genie back in the bottle. I've never bought into that. Now California is trying to refelonize seven plants in your garden. There's a lot of hatred in the DNA of um, of Virginia, and um, they're trying to mask a lot of that with um, capitalism. And it's like it's a reset. Thing hearing too. It's not like just free everybody from jail and like let them go. It's like go back to whatever the crime would be now, you know, like, and, and that seems, it seems like a no brainer. The, the idea that this wouldn't be something that would be, um, you know, on the books is just, it's unfair. Nicole, do we, have, do we have a number to how many people are actually affected by this that are actually currently incarcerated? 428. It's like I said before, like a lot of people need, they should be watching Virginia closely because this is what happens when you have Democrats that push something into law and Republicans take over. We could be looking at something similar happening on a federal scale um, right after midterms. Prepare. All right, if nobody else wants to weigh in, we'll go ahead and keep moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got today, Rico? Man, I got some I got some shit coming out of Los Angeles. So this one's actually um, first uh, pushed over to me by one of our team members, Jason Beck, yesterday. Um, hit the Twitter waves while we were still on the air yesterday. So yesterday morning, uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti's office put out a tweet marking the end of an era for the Los Angeles cannabis community that could ripple throughout the entire industry nationwide. Here's what it said. After nearly five years of leading the Department of Cannabis Regulation, Cat Packer is exiting her role of executive director. When we established DCR, we, needed, uh, we knew we needed a fierce leader who would not shy away from controversy associated with this responsibility, and Cat was that leader under her. Leadership, DCR issued over 1,200 licenses with 350 granted to social equity applicants. DCR has, grant, has generated over $320 million in tax revenue since 2018. Cat's tenure at DCR made uh, the department a national model in establishing equitable cannabis policy and implementation. Uh, Michelle Garakian, longtime assistant executive director, will serve as the interim executive director. Um, I had a lot of mixed feelings when I got word, and um, I've known Kat personally since uh, early 2017. She was still a DPA, and we'd often have brief but in-depth optimistic conversations about how the industry could play out after public testimonies, rallies, and educational sessions, you name it. Um, we connected first on, a similar, uh, on similar Virginia roots and secondarily on po uh, policy stances. Believe it or not, we Los Angelinos were pretty politically active back then with uh, many of us um, united on social equity messaging. A lot's changed since then. She was an inspiration every time she took the mic 
as a confident, young, black, non-gender conforming queer voice on the rise who cared most about our industry being formed from a people first perspective. But many operators also voice concerned her profile was used politically as an effort by senior city officials to check every box possible, making her the perfect fall guy for inevitable future missteps. And they were in abundance. Nearly three years passed before first social equity licenses were distributed after applicants were required to secure and pay escalated rent prices on green zone facilities. Many went broke and or left the process altogether in disgust with how things went down. Back to the trap. Taxes are out of control and nearly everyone's questioned enforcement policies with legal operators regularly raided and trap shop crackdowns few and far in between. But she was un underfunded, understaffed, inexperienced, essentially building an in industry from the ground up while it was being, was, while it was already in the air. Much of that would have happened regardless of who was in charge. Before leaving, one of her final acts was protecting social equity applicants from predatory investor relationships, essentially allowing them to walk away from unsavory partner obligations. One license holder who I was able to speak with yesterday, she asked me to uh, remain anonymous. Um, she said it was the best thing that happened to her over the last five years, and Kat should be heralded for making that happen as a final act. Cat Packers lost a lot of friends and gained a lot of enemies over the years because of her role as LADCR executive director, but I'm pretty confident she's gained plenty of respect, too. To step into such a big role and take on the biggest market in the world that's essentially been lawless the last 25 years is a task many of us would not willingly take on. She did. I'd venture to go on uh, saying not only did she do the best that she could, but because of her unapologetically being who she is, the same reason folks think she would have been easily scapegoated made her a better cannabis czar than anyone else could have been over the same time. Quote unquote, checking all boxes means there's a lot more of us, the full cannabis community in her personality than someone else in that role. I'm okay with that. Whatever it is tomorrow brings for Cat Packer, former LADCR executive director, I wish her the absolute best. No longer as a media opponent on the other end of a microphone and camera as we've had to be over the last few years, but once again as a friend and fellow advocate for the greatest community on earth. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on the street reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And I'd like to ask our very own Jason Beck, as an operator who's had to maneuver under her reign, how's the news of Cat Packer stepping down affected you? Well, I'll say this, how has it affected affected me? I mean, some a number of our social equity licenses still aren't uh, gone through the whole process. And a lot of that is due to the, the delay at DCR, um, not to mention the major delays that happen at the state level. Um, but I think Cat uh, did the best that she could do with the tools that she was given, which is very little to none, um, as well as a lot of um, legislative support, which she didn't have a lot of either. So overall, I think she did a great job with what she had, and I wish her the best on her new venture. Anybody else want to comment on Kat? I do. I changed my profile picture. Uh, Kat Packer was a frequent speaker at the State of Cannabis Conference. Um, when she spoke, I think it was 2019, I got on some kind of call list and I had people calling me constantly. I'm, I was in pre-production and all of these folks were calling me and screaming at me and really upset because I had Cat Packer as a speaker. 
And I finally, I just, I said, you guys have to stop this. You need to call everyone on the tree. Stop calling me. Let me produce this event. We're having a conversation. Why would you want to stop the conversation? I'm on your team. You know, let's not stop this conversation. I can't imagine what it was like to take on the job that she took on. You know, she was on the bleeding edge. And um, I just, I hope she finds something really, really fun that she loves doing and can just relax for a while. Yes, I have nothing but respect for Kat Packer. And I hope she writes a tell-all uh, book and becomes a successful author. It's so empowering as a woman and a woman of color. So to step in such a role, whether, you know, she stepped on or not, doesn't matter. Just taking that role in general is just amazing. You know, we had a, a hand raised a second ago. Um, somebody from the cannabis community wanted to say something. I don't see well. her. I don't see the hand, but I'm Thank inviting her. Oh, there we go. Hi. So Lisa. just want hey Rico. So just wanted to say as somebody who's been working with a social equity person for the past five years for retail, Cat actually is the only reason we have a fighting chance right now to get from under our predatory investors. So for that, people need to thank her for the last thing that she the DCR recommendations that she pushed through. And I really don't think that anyone could have done a better job. And I think people need to be very wary of what's coming. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> I always tell everyone, like, if anyone had anything negative to say, you know, I'm sure there's some political back end that a lot of people have their, you know, their opinions. But when we talk about, like, what she was given and the, you know, actual projects that they were expecting her, like, she's not a fucking magician meets, like, miracle worker meets, like, like she did the best that she could. And like, I literally could not even imagine getting put that weight on your shoulders as, I mean, as such, you know, and she was young, she was young in her professional career. And like, I think that she did a great job and I, I hope to, I want to see what she goes to do, you know, next and, and follow Cat Packer because the experience of what LA on a like spiritual, mental, and like even physical level must have done um, both to, you know, sharp in her sword for her next uh, endeavors like the, the, la is one of the largest cities in the united states like this is she is a monumentous uh responsibility and she i think she did a pretty good job um and, and i have a lot of shit to talk about a lot of people so um i'm excited to see what she does next yeah she stepped into that role in her mid-20s people need to realize that yeah Baby. to think that that's on your fucking resume like, going even, forward. I can't even like I think about it in my mid twenties. Like, man, my bank account was a fucking disaster. Like, I speaking of bank account, I I know they didn't pay her enough for that Did job. You say mid twenties. Mid twenties. Yes. All right. Mid <laughs> She's not in her mid twenties. She's definitely rocking it. But I mean, does anyone know what that role even pays? I heard it's almost 200, but I'm not, uh, I don't have confirmation on that. It should be public information not though, enough. right? Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> All right. Well, if anyone has, doesn't have any more comments on the adventures of Cat Packer, uh, we will go ahead and hop to our next correspondent, Mr. Jason Beck, the longest running retailer in cannabis U.S. history and the highest member of the GOP. And the industry's very own Kaiser Brose. What do you have for us today, Jason? 
Oh, I have a whopper for you today, Nicole. Today, my story comes out of DC. And for some, U.S. marijuana industry becoming a David versus Goliath battle. In the U.S. marijuana industry and evolving into David versus Goliath confrontation, a number of marijuana business officials and advocates characterized today's cannabis industry as a, a, a figurative warfare, pitting large companies seeking to dominate the market against smaller operators and entrepreneurs just wanting a, a foot in the door. In a quote, I think it's kind of uh, it's kind of is big business versus everybody else, said Matt Abel, a Detroit attorney who's been involved in legalization efforts and industry for more than 20 years. Abel, for his part, is critical of many large marijuana companies. They're greedy, he said. They want all the market share. But lumping multi-state operators into one bucket is an oversimplification and risk villainizing good actors, countered Jason Eric's communications director, director for Cresco Labs, a Chicago-based MSO. He says, I don't think you can lump all of the MSOs together as having a singular agenda or supporting opposing things for the same reasons. It's all in the details, Eric said. The CEO of Massachusetts-based MSO Cure Leaf Holdings, Joe Bayern, recently made the case to MJ Biz Daily that the big that that big cannabis can be good cannabis. <coughs> oh, excuse me, that was just totally ridiculous. Um, there is a misperception around big cannabis that that we that we've that we're keen to correct. Bayern said, "Our scale means that we can invest in the highest quality products, cultivation, processing facilities." and in our team members and our communities so that we set the industry leading standards. It also means that we can invest in product research and development to continue to bring new innovative products to the market. It is, it is real. It really is big business versus the consumer and craft grower said Rezwan Khan, the president of the global Alliance for cannabis commerce, a trade association that supports free market policies, open markets, and a, a, a lack of license caps. What we're seeing is, is there are organizations out there that are really pushing to put some type of either full block on federal legalization or a major push out because they want the opportunity to build their businesses, Khan added. Khan uh, also uh, parted ways with the U.S. Cannabis Council, the USCC, last year after he sat through what he said was a presentation by an attorney representing one of the group's members. The pro-legalization trade group, uh, accounts among its ranks many of the largest companies Khan argued the attorney's presentation equated to a lobbying effort to stop federal legalization with the aim of protecting existing market share in various states the daily beast reported on the presentation which the uscc did not adopt as a formal position and said was only part of a discussion amongst its members I can tell you what, it was 100% their fucking agenda. The USCC CEO, Steve Hawkins, said that the presentation was considered put down and forgotten about. But Khan argued similar policies are being proposed to lawmakers at the federal and state levels by companies that don't care about social justice issues related to cannabis or anything consumer related. There are companies that are publicly traded, and now they have motivations that are a little different than the rest of us, Khan said. Their motivation is, what are their shares worth? What, what's their return for their investors? And when that becomes their focus and motivation, often those machines get pushed in a direction that are at odds with the consumer and the small business, Khan added.
The industry is almost in a state of civil war right now about this idea of interstate trade as part of a comprehensive federal reform, the source told uh, MJ Biz Daily. When we're talking about trade associations and actions of some of the biggest funder companies are, are in a contradiction of the stated good intentions of the trade associations. The source singled out Columbia Care and its reported opposition to the legalization bill in Delaware. But the source also said that uh, that was only one of many such examples. A lot of these companies would rather just see safe banking and 280E reform or just 280E reform because they already have banking and not the end of prohibition because it's better for their bottom line, the source said. Well, I'll tell you what, I couldn't agree more with this source. And uh, MSOs are total fucking protectionists and totally want to capture their market share and don't give a fuck about the little guys. So don't fucking try to believe that they do. And at the same time, it ultimately comes down to one of two things. It comes down to the craft farmer and the people that actually smoke cannabis versus the MSOs that don't fucking smoke cannabis. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. And this is why I say, don't you dare touch my outdoor garden. You better let us grow at home. F fuck big canna. Except if you're I, black, because that's the only way I, we can get in. I, I, I'm so torn on this because, you know, uh, I mean, real life, you know, not trying to, to poke the bear too much. But Jason, you know, the idea is to, to expand. I mean, looking at getting into other states and at that point wouldn't you be a multi-state operator 100 percent. but what i'm talking about are the msos that are part of certain trade organizations that are actively lobbying to uh to disenfranchise the craft market the home grower and keep uh keep market shares on a protectionist basis so they can keep prices artificially high within those markets open up interstate trade and let's have a real fucking free market There is no such thing as a real free market. These Brads and Chads will not be able to compete in the game. The scheduler bust. Sorry, we've got some folks in the audience that are trying to get up. Uh, Ollie Muffins, did you want to go ahead and go? Then we'll do you, Joey, and Kai T. Yes, please. Good morning. Thanks for allowing me up. I sort of side with Nicole, and I want to put uh, this idea to everyone that when we talk about expanding cannabis and increasing access to plant medicine, we do need large quantities of relatively cheaper um, goods. And there's a place for, you know, the greatest burger of all time with Jason Beck will eat, but there's also a place for McDonald's. And uh, we can't have a proper restaurant industry and feed people that cannot afford the $20 burger. They can only afford a $5 burger. We need the cure leaves in my opinion. Thanks for letting well, the me problem. Know. The problem with that Ali is in a lot of these states and marketplaces, all that they have is the option of McDonald's or Burger King. They don't have the option of the world's finest burger in the world. And that's the fucked up problem. And that's why we need interstate trade. And also why there's a space for a luxury brand MSO, Jason. There's no such thing as a luxury brand MSOs. MSOs are just entitled to luxury. They're not yet. That's not true for real life. That's not like the idea that that you couldn't do both is is fucking like let's I'm all not give saying up you now. You can't then. do both, Nicole. I'm saying the people that that are are trying to pose this 
pose this position are fucking fake fraudulent fucktards specific people and watch out with the using use of the word tard sir yeah. uh, but uh it's not it's it, you know it, you you have to be very specific when we're having this conversation because there are multiple companies that are doing fucking great shit that are in multiple states and so just going around and being like mso's this and mso's that is epically unfair But you can't scale really good cannabis. I just don't see it happening. Um, let's give, we're way over time. Let's give Joey uh, 10 seconds and then Katie 10 seconds and then we'll wrap. Yeah, I'm just really glad you guys mentioned Michigan because um, I've worked, uh, that's exactly what's happening with the MCMA here in Michigan. And it's very interesting to me because I've worked in Cure Leaf, I, I do uh, irrigation systems and I've worked in a Cure Leaf facility and I've worked at caregivers facilities. And let me tell you, um, Cure Relief does not want a, care, a caregiver facility to exist anymore. And we're seeing that with the MCMA in Michigan, they do not want caregiver facilities and they would do whatever it takes. They would do whatever lobbying, whatever it takes to shut these guys down. And let me tell you, Cure Relief does not care about their employees. They don't care about the cannabis they're growing. They just care about the money. So I really do think this is an important issue to raise. And I'm really glad you guys mentioned Michigan. I hope you guys do some more stories on it. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Thank you, Joey. Neither does Joe Biden. Thank you, Joey. Katie, did you want to uh, do 10 seconds? Sure, thank you. Um, yeah, no, I just believe that I live in California and I've smoked the Mary Jane for more than half my life. And I just believe that it's it's going more in a positive direction um, for someone who used to take medication for ADHD and just got off it. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's more natural than anything. And the more we can grow at home and produce for ourselves, produce for our neighbors, just do trading, you, you know, just, just trade, just do what you got to do and don't let the government know. But I understand we're, we're talking about the government, but yeah, just take care of yourself and let the universe handle it. We're going to get there guys. Just, just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm proud of everyone here. Thank you. All right. So up next, our next correspondent does it all. Not only is he the founder of a boutique transactional cannabis law firm, but also a legal publisher, author, Ganjier, and curiously, a practitioner of high-style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So don't be surprised if he breaks the wrist and walks away, if it's you that gets caught fucking up the rotation in a cipher with him. <laughs> I told you that he was capable of. Omar Figueroa, what you got for us this morning, my man? Not wrist locks, uh, but you know, usually they're considered kind of cheating in jujitsu, but I do like wrist locks. They, they're definitely effective. Uh, thank you, Rico. Happy Friday, everyone. My story is from The Gothamist by Karen Lewis. The headline is Cannabis Equity Advocates Hail Innovative Approach for Recreational Weed Licenses in New York. So state policy seeking to right the wrongs of the past by prioritizing recreational weed licenses for those with past convictions is a step in the right direction, advocates said this week. New York's first cannabis dispensaries are slated to open by the end of the year, which is months ahead of the summer 2023 launch date cannabis officials had pointed to in the past, state officials confirmed on Thursday. And under the new licensing regulations, 
people convicted of a cannabis offense before legalization in March 2021 would have a head start in the entrepreneurship process, as would the family members of those with such convictions. In an unprecedented attempt to address historic inequities, that cohort would be the only group eligible to apply for the first round of retail licenses in New York, officials said. Ernesto Castillo is one applicant who might benefit from New York's new regulations. Castillo, age 36, grew up in Upper Manhattan and spent years building a marijuana delivery service, delivery service with his partner, Joe Callado, that covered all five boroughs. He said he spent three years behind bars for marijuana possession and faced stigma from friends and family. But he also said he wants to be recognized for his entrepreneurship and has been preparing to enter the legal industry for a long time. Once things got serious on the West Coast, I realized change was inevitable, Castillo said. I realized change was coming to the East Coast as well. It was just about connecting the dots. Castillo said he would like to open a dispensary in Washington Heights, but he added that he is interested in other aspects of the industry as well as distribution. He said he hoped there would be more resources available to people who are working to transition to the legal industry from the so-called legacy market. Those hundred licenses going to impacted people is a good step. It's a great step, Castillo said, but it's definitely not over. The policy to prioritize that group would likely garner between 100 and 200 licenses, according to Chris Alexander, executive director of the state's Office of Cannabis Management. That would likely be just a fraction of the industry as the state has not set an upper limit for the number of overall licenses. But prioritizing these 100 to 200 businesses would represent one of the first concrete steps that New York officials have taken to deliver on the promises of equity and inclusion that were made in the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, the law that legalized cannabis in March 2021. The law called for half of the licenses going to so-called social equity applicants, a category that includes not only those who have been impacted by prohibition, but also distressed farmers, disabled veterans, and women and minority-owned businesses. New York State is making history, launching a first-of-its-kind approach to the cannabis industry that takes a major step forward in righting the wrongs of the past, Governor Kathy Hochul said in a statement on the measure known as the Seeding Opportunity Initiative. Hochul passed a bill last month that aims to make it possible for New York hemp farmers to transition to marijuana cultivation in time to have product ready for these early dispensaries to sell. Other states have implemented their own social equity measures, but they have not always been successful. Advocates said New York's plan goes further and shows a willingness to experiment with new approaches. This is about innovation, said Cassandra Frederick, executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance and nationwide nonprofit. She and other advocates said they hoped there would be a similar equity provisions for other types of licenses, such as those for cannabis cultivation or delivery. Frederick said that creating opportunities for diverse groups to enter the industry has often been an afterthought during legalization in other states. The dispensary licensing regulations will now undergo a 60-day public comment period after which the state will open up applications to those who are eligible. Um, the state is offering additional support to early applicants, including help with leasing property, and Hochul has proposed including a $200 million in the state budget to provide capital to social equity applicants through a mix of public and private funds.
So my take is this is awesome. This is an example of the arc of the moral universe bending in the direction of justice. And if this happened in California and there's no reason why it can't in the future, a lot of my former clients uh, who I uh, represented facing felonies for cannabis-related offenses uh, would qualify. And I think California and other states uh, should follow New York's lead. The headline is Cannabis Equity Advocates Hailed Innovative Approach for Recreational Weed Licenses in New York. This is Omar Figueroa, lawyer, author, ganja instructor, and non-risk-locking uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu high style, reporting from Sebastopol in Sonoma County for the State of Cannabis News Hour. You know, New York is a a lot of upside that they can capitalize on, and I hope everything uh, works out the way uh, that it's moving. It, we will be watching closely. It's something I'll be um, speaking about on Monday um, at South by Southwest with um, two representatives of Washington Heights as well. My brother's uh, from Happy Monkey. Can't wait to be out there with Vlad. I'm willing to bet that none of these stores get opened on time due to numerous lawsuits that will ultimately be filed around these policies. Just go smoke weed on the street in New York. That's all I care about. Just go smoke weed on the street. I thought I was going to hear a lot of East Coast versus West Coast stuff. I mean, our governor, Jerry Brown, said that Californians should sit back and watch and learn from other states. And apparently New York wants to teach. So Jerry Brown was also known as, you know, the white Suge Knight of uh, politics. <laughs> I mean, in, in the 70s, too, he was also known as Governor Moonbeam. All right. I what that meant. I don't know, but he didn't smoke weed. I do know that. But we're good. We're past the half hour mark, so we are going to relight. A family raised and with roots in Long Beach, a single mother building generational wealth, the first of its kind, changing lives and enhancing highs, medicate high luxury. Meet Canna Express. High luxury cannabis, flower, and concentrates available now at your local Catalyst dispensaries. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker at State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. At True Classic OG, we live by one motto. Stay true. We stay true to our legacy cut of true OG that's always fresh, piney, gassy, and delicious. We represent the spirit, hustle, and diversity of our great city of angels. We stay true to the plant, doing everything in-house to ensure you get the highest quality and consistency with every batch. That's what's made us LA's favorite OG. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news.
And up next, we have TV's dope dad from Annie's Modern Dads, host and co-creator of the new show Hitting the High Road with Stone Slade and Sensi Mag. Stone, what do you have for us today? Thank you, Nicole. Today, I'm bringing everybody an update on adult use in New Mexico. We first reported about adult use legalization in New Mexico when it passed back in June, and we've done a few updates since then. Well, now we're less than a month away from the April 1st date that officially begins the era of legal pot in the land of enchantment, while the neighboring Texas people like myself watch and uh, watch as another bordering state go full legal. As I mentioned, cannabis technically became legal last June when the Cannabis Regulation Act, or CRA, officially went into effect. So retailers and local government have been working overtime to finally be able to serve the public at large. And here's what you need to know before the big day. Adult use cannabis will be available for sale for anyone over the age of 21. Medical cannabis will all still be available to everybody enrolled in the medical cannabis programs, regardless of age. Limits on, on, on uh, adult use buying will be up to two ounces of flour, 16 grams of extracts, and 800 milligrams of edibles in a single day. Those limits also apply to how much cannabis can be transported at a time, and there's no limit to how much weed you can store at home. As far as where you can smoke weed, cannabis consumers can smoke cannabis on their own property, of course, but will also be able to smoke in designated cannabis consumption areas that have been licensed specifically for that purpose. As of right now, there aren't any official cannabis bars, but the CRA does allow for them. So expect to see those sooner than later. And I gotta say, allowing consumption lounges uh, from the get-go gets a big uh, A-plus for me for New Mexico. Consumption, uh, public consumption areas will ultimately make the greatest impression on normalization and the public's attitude towards pot consumers in the state. When it comes to growing, every person over the age of 21 is allowed to cultivate up to six cannabis plants in their home with a limit of 12. Homegrown plants are obviously uh, only for personal consumption, cannot be sold or used for bartering. However, the CRA does allow individuals to gift cannabis to other uh, individuals over the age of 21, as long as there's no financial consideration. Just like current legal states, uh, the taxes for cannabis are steep and compared to other consumer goods. They're scheduled to rise every year until 2030. Consumers will have to pay the regular sales tax of 8% with an additional 12% excise tax. And every year uh, on July 1st for the next seven years, that excise tax will rise 1%, capping out at 18% in 2030. Medical cannabis patients obviously do not pay uh, tax. They're tax exempt. Uh, however, those who exceed their three-month purchasing period will have to purchase adult-use cannabis and pay taxes just like everyone else. Uh, in the state of New Mexico, there's nothing that protects cannabis consumers from being discriminated at work. So uh, you'll still have to, you can still be denied uh, for testing positive for cannabis when you, when you apply. And lastly, shortages. The Cannabis Control Division and industry producers have been working hard to mitigate shortage, potential shortages, but no matter how hard they they prepare, shortages will be inevitable. If you remember, shortages were a big concern in some of our previous reports about adult use in New Mexico, but the bigger issue in the state, I, I believe, and we've reported before, is the shortage of water. It'll be interested, uh, I'll be very interested to keep an eye on New Mexico to see if the state's water supply can keep up with the demand of their cannabis supply. And of course, this issue and many others would be fixed, as like Jason said, with a little interstate commerce. So in the words of our Nicole West, descheduler bust, I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you, Stone. We've got uh, Jay from New Mexico up from the audience. Jay, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for uh, continuing to report on my home state. I appreciate it. It's looking promising out here. The state was moving really slow to uh, process licenses and to get back to people, but now they're on the ball. Um, my license and a friend's license is almost ready to go for cultivation and retail and consumption. So yeah, it's looking great. Thanks for reporting. 
Take care. Enjoy, my friend. Cool. We are at the end of time for that story. So up next, he's an OG dope dad known and respected by industry peers as a steadfast defender of cannabis culture and perpetual bridger of gaps. Always first to step up and defend the legacy operators. The co-founder and now CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming to the stage next. Y'all know what time it is. Giro Court, what you got for us today, my man? Good morning, Rico. Good morning, Susan and Nicole. Thank you, team. Um, yeah, happy Friday. Uh, I'm coming to you today from CNBC.com. Uh, and the title of the article is Jones Soda Unveils Cannabis-Infused Sodas, Syrups, Gummies Under New Mary Jones Brand. Hmm. So, meet Mary Jones, a new brand from Jones's Soda that will feature cannabis-infused sodas, gummies, and syrups. It's a bold step for this publicly traded company, best known for its craft soda. It, this company is relatively small compared to its Coca-Cola and Pepsi rivals. In fact, the revenue uh, for Jones Soda last year in 2021 was 14.8 million, which is 0.04% of Coke's revenue for a full year. So really small player, but they're a small player in soda. We're gonna be the biggest national player when it comes to a recognizable consumer package, good name in cannabis, Jones marketing chief Bon Blair said. You know, broader trends within beverage, industry, brewing lines, all the stuff that we know. Um, it's hard for me to like get my head around this beverage thing that is like becoming such a thing in our industry when I'm not sure that it's quality cannabis, but health claims aren't our equity. Flavor is, Blair says. We had some conversations earlier on, should we be putting CBD in this? And no, it's not who we are, right? However, they are putting in 10 milligrams of cannabis in a 16 ounce can infused with uh, 100 milligrams and 100 milligram syrups designed to be mixed in with other foods and whatnot. Bottom line is, here's another company coming in to make cannabis products, in my humble opinion, in a way that is not plant medicine, right? It's great that you have a name, it's great that you have a brand, but the notion that you are sidestepping wellness in cannabis and just talking about syrups and flavors to cover your distillate, that is to me the definition of boof and I'm not exactly happy about it. So yes, it's nice to see brands coming into the industry. Is it? You know, like if this was like a healthy brand or like, you know, some kind of like kombucha or something, maybe I'd be like, oh, okay, this makes sense. But more syrup, more high fructose corn syrup, more artificial flavors in our industry just because these people have money in their pockets while the rest of us are struggling to eat? Uh, I'm sorry, Jones. Uh, I'm not having it. I'm Guy Roker reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm with you, Guy. I'm a little torn too on the fact that, you know, we have the conversation about uh, um, attractive to children, like soda pop, you know, I think a lot of their their um, marketing would be that. And so I would assume that they wouldn't wanna have it be the same brand. Like I understand PBR keeping their logo PBR cause it's like, that's made for alcohol, that's made for adults, you know? But I, I do have a little bit of a, that whole conversation of being attracted to children or being brands that children are commonly known. I feel a little concerned about this in general on a compliance level. Yeah, you know, that's a great point that I even, that even occurred to me as I'm looking at the packaging, if you guys go to the article, it's like, it is too colorful. And it's like, why, it, like, yeah, what the, like th that issue of children is something that's all over our industry. And these folks are just soldiering in like dumbly and it's just gonna cause more issues, you know? It's not, something is not right here in my opinion. But I think that children part is, yeah, my kid drinks Jones soda. 
Yeah, I agree there. They've been also, you know, I, I come from the, the the extreme sports world here in, in Austin, Texas and wakeboarding and, and Joan Soda has always been involved with that and the, you know, the kids at the tournaments. So I'm a little torn there too with you guys. I, I just don't see how, how that goes. That also, you know, they used to be a small company and they grew to be something that's big and, you know, props to that. But when I, when you cross over into cannabis, I agree with you guys on that. Guy, I love how you're keeping up with the Joneses, dog. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> well all right thank you so much for that headline Guy. um and we'll hop to our next correspondent uh miss maggie wilson maggie's the first black female cannabis sommelier best-selling author of the metaphysical cannabis oracle deck which is debuting in the hash museum in amsterdam in spain this summer and the cmo at fruits labs what do you have for us today maggie Hey team, thanks Nicole. Today I've got a less, you know, not so serious story. It looks like Rockford's first cannabis infused bakery opens its doors. Miss, Mrs. Buckby's Wake and Bakery will sit at the corner of East State Street and Perryville Road. This is an article from 23WFIR, uh, Illinois. This is by Connor Hollingsworth. So Miss Huckabee, Miss Buck B's Wake and Bakery has a soft opening, uh, had a soft opening on March 9th with their grand opening set for March 16th at 4.20 in the afternoon. The bakery infuses its items with cannabis. Uh, it says that uh, in addition to baked goods, it will also offer a bit of CBD, Delta 8, or Delta 9. Uh, a quote from the owner says, we have a wide variety of things and so our flower we're particularly proud of because we grow it right here in Rockford and we've given it some really great Rockford names to pay tribute to our hometown. We have Sock Monkey and Sinisippi Sunrise. Uh, um, Sinisippi Sunrise are two of his favorites. Um, Carlson said that they will also sell cannabinoid-infused products to those who are only the age of 21 and over, but they will also sell baked goods that are available to the, uh, to the underage public. So if you're in Rockford or around Illinois, it looks like you're going to have a nice little bakery, get your pastries and weed. I'm, I'm here for it. So this is Maggie reporting from the State of Cannabis. If anybody's in Illinois, uh, well, I'd love to hear Jason's comment about these strain names that they just made up and their uh, how good is their Chicago weed um, <laughs> in this bakery. So uh, th that's my, this is my story, and this I'm reporting from uh, Long Beach for State of Cannabis News. They need to call themselves what they are, really are, and that's a hemp bakery, mm -hmm. not a real cannabis bakery. Not to mention, too, I'll try to I'll try one of those uh, Delta Eight croissants. Oh God! <laughs> well, I'm I mean, okay, cool. Thank you that they're regulating twenty one and over only, which I appreciate. But the idea that you know this is something that is going to last very long, I think, is uh, you know. A, a joke because this is these are the kind of things that we saw you know trying to pop up left and right and then them slowly getting kind of curbed back i can't see that with the market that the way it is now in illinois um that the you know and, and illinois is heavily regulated by those uh msos that jason had so much opinion to say about you know those big uh crescos and whatnot uh, of the world and cura leafs so i i can't see this actually staying up for very long just I know this bakery, Bo Wrigley, is definitely coming for this bakery to close it down. How so? Because he's Cresco, and they're in Illinois, and they're taking market share.
I guess we're at the end of the time for that story. Up next, it's the founder and CEO of the multi-location cannabis retail brand Catalyst, and he's also a man with the firm control of the diaphragm. This means he needs no motherfucking megaphone as he tells you how to get weed to the people. Elliot Lewis, what you got for us this morning, my man? Apparently has no microphone. Uh, I got it. Here we go. Sorry, multitasking. Here we go. I do have a day job, but we're rocking. Uh, Anyway, I wanted to bring some color to Long Beach Social Equity because I do think I have a lot of insight, uh, being that I kind of know where it started, where it went, and who was blocking it. Uh, You know, everybody likes to talk about uh, the barriers of entry and social equity, which we all know are money and red tape and uh, access to capital and all these things. The ones they don't talk about are the industry itself and the fake ass fucking progressives that try to block it. Here's the real history of Long Beach. They, instead of doing the brick and mortar, they try to throw the social equity advocates fucking breadcrumbs. They gave them these tiny little grants for a production program. It was a joke. In fact, the the person that advertises on here is the one of 177 people that actually made it through the process. It didn't make any sense at all. But that was the industry itself throwing out breadcrumbs so they wouldn't have to give up the brick and mortar. And the progressives, and I'll get to that, were fucking playing the game with them. So then what they did is they said, hey, we'll give out three delivery licenses, which, by the way, they still haven't got to, and I say unlimited delivery. But in addition to that, they put the brick and mortar, which is ultimately something that can be monetized it has a lot of advantages the the grants make sense possibly you bring in uh you know individual or uh you know investor funding uh you obviously you want protections in place they put that in further investigation we all know what further investigation means take the first two letters f u that's what it means in politics so they had the progressive caucus rex richardson the guy who thinks he leads the progressive caucus blocking the brick and mortar i personally sent him a text trying to get his head straight. His answer to me was, and I quote from my phone, the problem is my black and brown brother communities aren't ready yet. I don't want to open up the floodgates until we are sure there is a clear wet pathway for people to get in. My reply was, well, that's weird because I met a bunch of them that are blah, blah, blah. They need loaves, not fucking breadcrumbs. The end. So how do you get brick and mortar in Long Beach when some motherfucker that claims to be a progressive is holding down five votes? You go to the moderates. There's the city council in Long Beach is nine people. So I went to the moderates, pointed the social equity groups in the right direction. The LB triple C, not to be confused with some other bunk fucking entity around here that was blocking it, talking out of both sides of their mouth. Uh, I was instrumental, but I sent them in the right direction. Who brought it to the floor? Al Austin and the only Republican. Now, once something makes it to the floor on a surprise attack, guess what? These motherfucking pandering fake progressives have to vote for it. But if they if they had their way, they would have left it in further investigation, delayed it inevitably or not passed it. Once it hit the floor again, I can't get into too many confidential texts. This motherfucker still try to block it only because now it was a matter of them getting the credit and they were really going to do it anyway, which was total fucking bullshit. Only a progressive or two that stood up to the machine. Did they now have the five votes and everything in this town passes unanimously? So. The true story about brick and mortar in Long Beach was LBCC with the political chess move of bringing the moderates in and knowing when it hits the agenda, the fake ass progressives in public will have to make a vote. And people forget, they see all these other barriers of entry. And if you're just going to be straight up about it, say, hey, 
look, the market's tight. We can't add licenses right now. To be fair, Long Beach did their shit in 2016. Social X Week kind of hit the radar in 18. But these are the same motherfuckers that have George Floyd, uh, you know, painted up on their uh, on their walls, and they're talking out of both sides of their mouth on the issue of brick and mortar. So uh, we were out early on the issue. The only dispensary, a lot of the ill will among other retailers is over this issue. And, uh, you know, again, I give the credit to the equity applicants. We are very proud that we played a part in this. And I think it's an important story not to like, you know, backpack or backpack by, uh, you know, our organization. It's just to let people know that the pandering ass fucking fake progressives and the trade associations are a lot of times an additional barrier of entry. So just kind of wanted to throw that into the mix. But the moderate and the only Republican, had it not hit the agenda, we'd still be in a circle jerk trying to figure out brick and mortar social equity in Long Beach. But it's coming. And yes, now that people know it's coming, and I should send you some old fucking funny emails, they are uh, actively talking to figure out the best policy. But it was a cock block from the gate, uh, and they got outmaneuvered by the more moderate members of the council. Facts. Can we just call social equity what it really is? Well, what it, I, it was that, Jason. Socialist oh equity is what it really should be called. Socialist well, equity. Well, whatever okay. your position is on social equity, I don't have an issue with it. My issue is the same motherfuckers that pander and pass votes and claim to be for equity when it comes down to special interest and protecting the industry or an industry that is trying to pretend like it's for social equity and they're like, whoa, we want to protect predatory and we want to do this. Yeah, no shit. Pass the fucking brick and mortar, then put all those rules in. So whatever your opinion is on social equity and what the best way is, and I'm actually had a lot of conversations in depth with staff here at Long Beach as well as city council. I think we're going to have a really good program. They're going to add eight licenses. Uh, we're putting protections in. I don't even think they should have investors. The fucking, the city just gave, our state just gave us three and a half million dollars. They should use the fund to fully fucking fund these businesses and let them control their own fucking destiny with no outside investor needed. Nonetheless, my issue is the hypocrisy, the progressives, the, the guys that claim to be champions of black and brown people are the same people that are cock blocking the social equity and that's where I get fucking pissed off. Well, what a bunch of really crude references, but thank you for your passion on that and definitely all the education in regards to what's going on. Um, thank you so much, Elliot. And up next, we have Miss Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, well, speaking of social equity, um, my headline is New York regulators unanimously advance rule to let people with marijuana convictions open shop before big businesses can enter market. Uh, this is coming from Marijuana Moment. New York regulators on Thursday advanced a rule to make it so people with prior marijuana convictions or whose family members have been harmed by criminalization will get the first round of adult use marijuana retailer licenses ahead of existing medical cannabis businesses. The development is one part of what Governor Kathy Hochul's administration is calling the Seeding Opportunity Initiative, uh, which she also announced yesterday. The New York State Cannabis Control Board unanimously voted to formally propose the retail regulations, which will soon be open for public comment. The Equity Owners Lead Program, as Hochul described it, sets the state apart from others that have enacted legalization, but faced criticism over a lack of promised results for the communities that have been harmed by the drug war. Office of Cannabis Management Executive Director Chris Alexander said earlier this week that he expects upwards of 200 justice-involved applicants to receive the priority licenses under the proposal, with retailers potentially coming online by the year's end. 
During a virtual press briefing after the board's meeting on Thursday, Alexander responded to a question from Marijuana Moment about potential criticism from existing medical marijuana businesses that have been operating in the state about being put second in line to receive adult use licenses. Uh, he said existing medical operators will absolutely be able to participate, but they knew and they supported the cannabis law. Uh, and the language included in the law that guides our actions today was that individuals who've been most impacted will be given priority as we build this adult use market. I think there's definitely an avenue and a pathway forward for those existing operators, those folks who have been supplying the patients of the state of New York for some years, uh, and they will be able to participate. But equity will lead and those who've been most impacted will go first. To qualify for the conditional license, an applicant would need to have been convicted of a cannabis-related offense prior to March 31st, 2021, when the state's adult use legalization uh, law was enacted. Those who have a parent, legal guardian, child, spouse, or dependent who face such convictions would also be eligible as those who were themselves dependent on someone with a conviction. Uh, Hochul said New York State is making history, launching its first-of-a-kind approach to the cannabis industry that takes a major step forward in righting the wrongs of the past. The regulations advanced by the Cannabis Control Board will prioritize local farmers and entrepreneurs, creating jobs and opportunity for communities that have been left out and left behind. I'm proud New York will be a national model for the safe, equitable, inclusive industry we are now building. Uh, it goes on to speak a little more about the applicants. Uh, I really don't understand why if you're a criminal, you just get to go first, but that's just me. This is scratching for State of Cannabis News Hour. Big ups to New York, and um, I don't know if this is going to work out the way they want it to work out, but um, it's major news. It's a major win for the people and the culture uh, that uh, New York has cultivated over years and years and years of uh, operating underground. I just hope that there's some actual other... Um, provisions necessary other than just being convicted of a crime qualifies you what's the point of giving someone a license if they can't actually operate Fuck that what's the point of giving people licenses just because they have a bunch of money and they want to come yeah. into it they want to come into it and they've never had any fucking experience with a bunch of money i'm saying give let, it to let, people hey. who know how to operate a, build, a business you can put social equity number one on the list if they got that great if they rico rico you get the final word we're we're at the top of the hour, Rico. Final I think, word. I think people should be getting licenses first across the board in America, whether it's federal, uh, um, whatever is coming from, if they have convictions in the past. They fucking did the time. They fucking made the sacrifices, and they should get first crack at this motherfucker before Th everybody else. Thank period. you. Thank you so much, Gretchen. Thank you, Rico. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye, Cat Packer. <laughs>